Welcome, everybody, to another episode of 26.1 AI Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Ndo, a clinical assistant professor of global health at the University of Washington, and he's the project director for government-initiated public-private partnership Cancer Center, currently being developed in Ondo State, Nigeria. Welcome, Dr. Ndo. Thank you very much, Don. Very glad to be here. So, so Kingsley, so how did you end up here on our podcast? Can you give us a quick rundown of your past, you know, 20 years or so? Wow, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm originally Nigerian and I went to medical school in University of Joss. Uh, Joss is a small city in the middle of Nigeria. And after medical school and working for a couple years in clinical medicine, I decided to move to the United States. And essentially, my passion was my passion moving to the United States was driven by just um, working, having a goal to work in population health and decrease or close the gaps between um, low income or limited resource settings and high income settings when it comes to global health in general and particularly cancer. So I moved to the U.S. in 2011, uh, got a graduate degree from University of Washington, global health, and uh, I did a short-term fellowship at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center at the Global Oncology um, Group at the Fred Hutch. And that's sort of how I kicked, started my career. Uh, my career has basically been focused uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, carrying out activities that uh, help to reduce the uh, disparities we see in cancer control uh, between uh, high-income countries and places like sub-Saharan Africa. So be it research, um, health policy, uh, working with governments to improve um, access to cancer medicines, uh, increasing capacity for local clinicians in in countries like Nigeria, Uganda. Um, so, so the constellation of my work really has focused on research that that is driven towards improving health outcomes when it comes to cancer in in these regions of the world. And you asked how I ended up in this podcast. Uh, myself and my co-founder just started. Uh, a tech company that uh, focuses on using AI and data science to really leapfrog these gaps uh, or the, the traditional methods of, of cancer control in limited resource settings. Uh, and, and we had previously talked to an angel investor who we had pitched our debt to. And uh, the angel investor outs is uh, John Cadwell, who... Uh, graciously introduced us to you guys, and I ended up here, and I'm very happy to be here. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. Kingsley. Now, for most people, when they encounter physicians, it's episodic in the perception of the patient, and then for the doctors in their practice, they'll see a variety of patients with um, a number of ailments that don't necessarily uh, relate to each other at all seems like somewhere very early on, instead of going that route, 
you became a lot more interested in a systems view of health and uh, wellness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you, uh, you know, I, I got to, I, when, when I got into global health, uh, I, I realized that the drivers of health is, you know, in multiple folds, uh, drivers of health outcomes is in multiple folds. It comes, it's, it's not just the physical building of a hospital. It also has to do a lot with the human resource. It has to do a lot with social factors like, you know, income inequality, uh, you know, they, they call it social determinants of health. So, so essentially, it's a cons- when you look at a healthcare system, it goes beyond just the hospital boundaries. Um, the, the political systems in those countries play a role. Uh, the, the unemployment levels play a role. You know, all these things play very critical roles in just... Um, determining what a healthcare system would look like. And that's why you'd see uh, correlations of things like GDP per capita and life expectancy, for example. Or even here in the United States, you could see huge differences between different, um, different zip codes and life expectancy or certain health outcomes. So um, it's, it's a very complex system. And, and I think... Uh, even though we have all we have several traditional ways we can we can we can um, employ to support and close these gaps we see in 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 the in the healthcare system. Uh, technology is one area that I think it's accelerating that change. So it sounds like to me that you're using machine learning to understand those population pockets um, and you can confirm that but also are you doing anything regarding nudging the population or something more directly tied to getting people back on track with population health yes so so essentially um, when it comes to it so it depends basically on the country so a lot of countries in sub-saharan africa uh, to nudge people into behaving certain ways or not doing certain things uh, to get better health or to have a better health usually would come from the top down. It will come from, you know, government messages. It will come from traditional uh, rulers or, you know, religious leaders. So when, when you want to cause change in certain populations, you have to go through people that do, that that section of the population revere or respect. Uh, a typical example is in COVID-19. Uh, you find that uh, like a place like Nigeria, I know too well, uh, people tend to follow what their pastors would tell them. So if their pastors say, you know, wear masks, masks are good, and it would help prevent the spread of the virus, they would take that message much more than when, say, someone that considers themselves a leader but is not really as respected as uh, the population who respects their religious leaders. Uh, And then when it comes to machine learning, you know that machine learning really can take place without having the data. The data is sort of the fuel for machine learning. And one of the missing pieces when it comes to cancer control in limited resource settings 
is uh, the, the, the critical data that is needed to establish patterns that is not yet known. And one of the things that we are doing is we're signing data agreements with several countries so that we can mine or we can uh, collate a lot of the data that is basically in paper form that really is valuable data but cannot be used. And one of the things Register is doing to really start developing a machine learning model in understanding a lot of the cancer situation in Sub-Saharan Africa is, is basically converting paper data into more usable data to inform those models. So how, what is the quality of the data that you're dealing with right now? Um, are, have you been able to explore, you know, through data science eyes and machine learning, how, how flawed or skewed or inaccurate it is yet? Well, the thing is, there's always going to be, I mean, there's no data that is perfect. Uh, we have to use what we we have, you know, what we can find. Um, right now, the pilots the pilots we're conducting for our our MVP is um, oh, for a minimum viable product is in cervical cancer, and the 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 pilot uh, basically um, has a section where we're collecting data that has been stored in patient uh, record files. And, um, you know, when it comes to machine learning models, you have to collect data, you know, whatever data you can find. Um, some of them would have some missing pieces, but really we are collecting as much as we can because there are some things that you feel that might not be um, important, but when you build those models, they, you know, a machine learning model can start seeing some patterns that you don't see just based on your, you know, medical training. From my perception, cancer is highly personal. Um, my mother, for example, has stage four lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And it hers is so specific that she has a very specific mutation that allows her to take a oral chemotherapy um, protocol as opposed to uh, traditional chemotherapy. That's how, how specific it is. How do you apply a population approach to cancer? What's, what's the data that you're looking at? What, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so uh, you know that, uh, and, and I'm really sorry that to hear that your mom is going through stage four cancer. You know, my thoughts and prayers are with her, and, um, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you, but, but I, I think uh, we may have Wolverine genes because she's she's been treating for several years now and been doing very well. And then oh, that's my great. father previously um, lived about thirty years longer than his cardiologist thought he should. So mm, okay, we're, well that's that's good to hear. That's really great to hear. Well, the the thing about and and you're right. You know, it's it's def, it's it's personalized medicine. And I mean, one clear example is the unfortunate death of Chadwick Boltzmann, who was diagnosed of colorectal cancer, as you know, at 39. And unfortunately, he died at 44. And the guidelines for colorectal cancer screening was previously at 50 years here in the United States, although right now it's been revised to 45 years. 
And this, this guideline is informed by um, the by the median age at, at, at which colorectal cancer is diagnosed. And the median age for the diagnosis of colorectal cancer in the U.S. is 68 uh, and a half years. And so it makes sense to start, to start screening early. And, uh, but unfortunately, even if Chadwick Bosman had screened, had waited till he was 50, obviously he, he's, he's already passed on and he probably didn't get that chance to screen. And so that's where personalized medicine comes into play because um, they are different. When you look at the, uh, the data that informed some of these guidelines, a lot of them are skewed towards Caucasian data. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, someone did a study, um, a group did a study a few years ago, and they saw that among all the FDA-approved cancer medicines, only 3% of the population that participated in those clinical trials um, were Black or were of African descent. So in essence, there are a lot of drugs that are approved or lots of guidelines that are set that misses out a huge chunk of data from minority group. So, and, and just, to, just to show you how different things are. So I, I mentioned that the median age of diagnosis of colorectal cancer in the U.S. is 68. There was a study that was done in Nigeria, specifically southwestern Nigeria. Um, and this study was done in collaboration with uh, uh, the, the um, Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center. And they found that the median age of diagnosis for colorectal cancer in the southwestern part of Nigeria was 43 years. And that is almost two decades apart when you look at the median age of diagnosis here in the U.S. and the median age of diagnosis in Nigeria. So a lot of these guidelines might end up or would likely end up being more personalized to that person because, you know, genetics play a role. There might be other family histories of like colorectal cancer that might inform uh, someone screening earlier than what the the recommendations say, and so those sort of things. And and when and and the only way to get a comprehensive data and really be precise on things like prevention, treatment is going to the source. And the source in this is instance where a lot of data is missing is Africa. Uh, we don't have enough um, data from from people of African descent. And that's what we are, we are presently uh, doing. Now, that you kind of already answered the question that I always love to ask, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So what is the precautionary tale around machine learning? And I believe what you've said, it is, there's some bias there in the data, correct? Um, do you see that here in the States as well? Is there bias in the data? And are there any other precautionary tales that you can think of in the space of AI and machine learning? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's always going to be bias in the data. It depends on the, to the extent, it depends on the extent to which that bias is tilting towards or with the extent of the bias in itself. Um, a very, a very um, good example is, you know, I was reading uh, an article in the New York Times uh, a few weeks back where um, it says that a lot of the facial recognition systems have like a 10 times error rate for blacks because 
uh, or one of the reasons, and this is not the sole reason, but one of the reasons is that the faces that go into this database to train um, on, on recognition is predominantly white. And so there's going to be a bias in misidentifying uh, black or other minorities. So it's, it's, it comes, and, and that's the same thing that happens in AI applications when it comes to healthcare. Um, the more data you have, the more diverse the data is, the better um, the accuracy of prediction um, that those this, the, an AI system would have. Uh, and, and sometimes really a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of centers, um, they try as much as possible to reach out to the communities to get people to participate in trials. But unfortunately, as you guys know, there have been some mishaps, I'll, I'll term it as mishaps, <laughs> in the past that makes, you know, minority groups very suspicious or not trusting of, of participating in clinical trials. And, and this is a problem, you know, because it would eventually cause some level of bias. It might not totally invalidate the data, but it will cause some level of bias that, that might be detrimental to the group that was left out in those trials. And, um, and since medicine is moving towards more precision, um, I think that's the gap we're trying to fill. Uh, by by you know getting as much data as possible, but in real time when you're you're using you know our app to to see patients, and also in retrospect when you're looking at data that has already been collected over time by doctors just seeing patients and writing history and trying to extract the most relevant data um, concerning that cancer. I mean, if you have like a, a like a million or two million. Um, data points, uh, it can it can make a huge difference. Now, with Register Health that you and Aliola are working on in, in improving the quality of data collection for cervical cancer, which is one of the cancers that is um, highly treatable if caught early enough, right? Yes. What What is the steps to what you're doing? You're collecting the data, improving kind of the visibility and kind of the variances from region or populations. Who's who's going to act on the information you're collecting? So essentially, uh, what we built is just a test um, a test app um, with our partners in Israel, and and uh, we developed an algorithm that helps to predict cervical cancer uh, for patients that have certain prompts that might be a possible early sign of cervical cancer. For example, uh, you know, things like vaginal bleeds or um, vaginal discharge. And, and this is really, uh, this is meant, or this is adapted for people that are more medical officers or younger doctors or just nurses that work in rural um, centers or rural uh, primary healthcare centers. And essentially what they do is the, the, when they see a patient uh, in the w- women clinic, they enter the symptoms that, that the patient um, tells them, and it gives them a prediction score. Um, and not just the prediction score, but even if it's, even if it's a low-risk cervical cancer and it's probably other things, 
Um, it advises the nurse on suggested preventive measures or suggested things that the nurse or the doctor or whoever, whatever health worker is seeing that patient um, to sort of advise on maybe you should come you know, next year for a pap smear if they have the capabilities of doing a pap smear or a VIA, you know, or if it's a very high risk that is a cancer, then they are referred to um, a, a much larger medical center that can um, actually do, uh, that can actually make a diagnosis, um, do like um, take a biopsy and, and make a bi- diagnosis. So, so that's basically what we are doing. Um, and at the same time, in real time, we're collecting all the data that, um, that these patients are presenting with, and it's being stored in a secured cloud. And your question is, what are we going to do with all this data? Well, um, that's where uh, we, we can, you know, it can be leveraged by a number of groups. We have, you know, governments can use it for epidemiological modeling, for planning, um, you know, in terms of cancer control strategies. Um, it improves our machine learning model. We can use it for, um, you know, uh, you know a future machine learning model to, to um to make those predictions better um we can you know it it can be useful for farmer companies who are trying to figure out what market size is or who are planning to do clinical trials in africa you know it can be used by a a lot of groups but the most important thing is to really have the data in a usable format so we're getting this data in real time and we're also getting the data by um, looking at data that's already been collected and, you know, cervical cancer is just sort of our test cancer since we're still an early startup company and we're basically in pre-seed stage and, um, you know, using the data we're going to be collecting from the pilot to, to raise our next round of funding. But, but essentially, that's where, where um, we want, we, our, I would say our vision in the next few years is to have the largest cancer data set of people of African descent. Oh, this is an, I'm... I'm blown away. I know that you're you're going to be hugely successful at this, and I see you democratizing data and data science at the same time in Africa. And really, really, that's amazing. Uh, time for a couple more questions. So bring it back home in the U.S. where you're located right now. Do you see a disparity here as well regarding race and uh, and being able to address disease and other things? Yes, there's there's definitely disparity here in the U.S. Um, and it's uh, it's in many folds. Um, it's it's not just you know when you talk about disparity, people just think about race quickly. Which yes, race is part of it. But like I said earlier in the podcast, even zip codes is is a huge deal. And um, when it when when we when it comes to cancer specifically, you have to look at insurance coverage that's i think that's number one if a woman for example do not have an insurance coverage she's unlikely um going to she's unlikely going to go to her primary care physician to like look at all the preventive things she's supposed to do maybe when she's due for a mammo or when she's due for a pap smear you know those sort of things are largely determined not just by educating people on what to do but also by their access and access here in the U.S. is largely um, hinged on um, health insurance, and that's why it's a big, it's a big, it's a big topic in the presidential 
um, elections. Um, the second thing is uh, mistrust. Uh, one of the things that, you know, like, for example, uh, when I was in the Fred Hodge Global Oncology, one of the things that a lot of researchers uh, have a challenge with is, is diversifying their study population. And by diversifying, I mean getting more minority groups to participate in those um, studies. And uh, the, the people are, are mistrustful just because of things that have happened in the past um, when it comes to you know, clinical trials. Um, things are much better now, obviously. There's so many checks and balances. There are very, um, you know, um, very um, well-resourced uh, IRBs, institutional review boards. And so, you know, before research is approved that has to do with human subjects, um, lots of things uh, are examined. I mean, there are some times that IRBs at the University of Washington is approved and, you know, um, it's the it's the the study gets rejected, say in Kenya, because of something was off, you know, and so it's it, there there's, there are lots of checks and balances now, and it will take some time for the community, um, especially minority communities, to like um, see these trials and say, yeah, I think I think I'll be treated fairly, and you know everything will be done ethically, um, and it takes a lot of education, it takes a lot to. Um, really get people to participate. So in that sense, you know, there there are disparities. Um, even, for example, if you just look at healthcare in general, um, you find out that unhealthy foods are more in um, poor neighborhoods. So you see things like McDonald's and, well, nothing against McDonald's. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned their names, but, but you know, you see a lot of fast food places in in zip codes that have um, you know more low lower income people uh, because um, you know th that's probably their target market and that also feeds into their health even things like simple things like just exercise um, people that live in safer neighborhoods are more likely to go outside and exercise than people that live in you know neighborhoods where you know, there, there, there's high crime rates. So you don't, you probably don't want to go exercise in the morning um, if you feel that someone is going to harass you or do something to you, or if you don't feel safe. So all these things um, really contribute to uh, to um, the disparities we see. Very typical example was is COVID nineteen. You know, COVID nineteen is uh, more um, lethal to to minority groups, and a lot of it is some of the things I've mentioned, and even more is like living with a lot of chronic diseases that you don't, are not, you know, having the right health, uh, the, the right um, medical care to control. Things like, simple things like um, high blood pressure. Some people that are not covered um, may not have the money to um, get their, you know, high blood pressure meds and control their blood pressure. And that could add that could be an added um, comorbidity when um, COVID nineteen hits. So, so those, so there, it's you can see it's a very complex, interwined, um, different set of factors that lead to the disparities we see here in the United States. Doctor, on the one thing I do want to highlight, since we're in a season of really confronting some truth about racism in the United States, is mm -hmm. as we're in the COVID nineteen pandemic. 
there's a big contrast in the anti-vaccination um, stance of Black Americans compared to privileged white people, maybe yeah. affluent and have their reasons. I just want to really highlight to make sure we're clear. Um, here in the United States, Black Americans have been uh, subjected to human rights violations in terms yeah. of medical research, right? Including the the founder of gynecology study in the United States and what he did with black women. So um, yeah, we should probably and, and, be very frank about that. Yes. Uh, and, and that's what I alluded to um, saying, you know, the injustices that have, ha- that have happened in the past. So people that are mistrustful of participating in anything, you know, it's based on good reason and it will take, even though a lot of things are being put in place right now to, or, I mean, like I, you know, I talked about the institutional review boards and how human subjects um, research is taken really seriously now in most institutions. Um, there's still a long way to go in just creating that trust between, um, you know, researchers and, and subjects for those research. Well, this has been wonderful. Really, really great having you on the show. Um, and I've learned a lot. And, uh, and you speak so eloquently. I, I really appreciate it. Anything that you want to leave behind about, you know, uh, how to lo- how to locate you if you want to be located or anywhere to look you up or join in supporting your causes? Yeah, you know, I would say uh, you can contact me uh, through my email and I'll be giving out the register health email. So my register health email is K-I-N-S, that's Kins, at register, and register is with an A, so R-E-G-I-S-T-A, health.com. So that's the easiest way to, to contact me. Fantastic. And I'm sure they'll love uh, connecting with you as well. Yeah. 